0: Welcome into the latest edition of the Sharpshooters. I'm David Schuster, along with Andy Roth. And today we're joined by a very special guest. We'll get to him in just a moment. As always, we're brought to you by DraftKings. And the first Sunday of the NFL season is here. And the excitement continues with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. DraftKings is giving all new customers a can't-miss offer excuse me, a can't-miss offer to celebrate the return of the NFL season. You just bet $1 on any football game this weekend and receive $200 and free bets instantly no matter what. That's right. DraftKings Sportsbook is giving all new customers $200 in free bets instantly when they bet at least $1 on any football game. DraftKings is safe, reliable, and secure, making it easy for you to deposit and withdraw your money at your convenience. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code THPN to receive $200 in free bets. When you place a $1 bet on any week one game, that's promo code THPN to get your free $200 in free bets instantly. This week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. You must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com Sportsbook for details. And gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. And as mentioned, Andy and I are very, very lucky to be joined by a good friend to both of us, Ian Eagle, who does just about everything in the sports broadcasting world, and I might add, does everything extremely well. Football, college basketball on CBS, Brooklyn Nets, of course, on the YES Network. French Open Tennis, Ian, I didn't even know that you did that, I had to look that one up. He's done boxing and track and field, all on CBS. And we could pick his brain on any or all of those subjects, but today we're going to stick mostly to the NBA, and we welcome in Ian Eagle. Ian, appreciate you joining us. Really nice of you to do that.
1: Great to be on with you guys, and uh, it, it's just nice that we're back in that mindset again. The NBA season is around the corner, so all of these narratives, all of these storylines are are starting to pop up, and synopses are firing left and right for basketball knowledge and basketball conversation.
0: And I and it's really interesting if you go by the odds makers, and I don't, but it's just interesting nonetheless. You might as well have the NBA finals tomorrow because <laughs> between Brooklyn and the Lakers, they're both the favorites in their conferences, and both of them, as you well know, have been extremely busy over the last couple of weeks, adding veteran after veteran. Of course, the Nets have added Lamarcus Aldridge and Paul Millsap, and the Lakers. I mean, they're going they're, they're going crazy: Rajon Rondo, Carmelo Anthony, Dwight Howard, DeAndre Jordan. Of course, you know him and Trevor Ariza. So. It's almost like both teams are gearing up and sort of countering each other over the last couple of weeks.
1: I think big names move the needle, and that's why it's gotten such tremendous reaction. But as we know, it doesn't guarantee you anything. You can win the offseason and not win the championship. From a Nets perspective, having been around the organization for an extended period of time, coming up on 28 years, which is hard to even fathom, I think they looked at their team, saw the faults that they had in the postseason when things went south from a health standpoint, and felt the need to really shore up that supporting cast. And because there's something happening in Brooklyn, and there's a quest for a championship, Guys want to play there. Patty Mills wants to play there. Paul Millsap wants to be a part of it. LaMarcus Aldridge coming out of retirement wants to come back. James Johnson, another pickup and a veteran that can help them. Uh, Young players now like Cam Thomas, who very well could be in the rotation based on his scoring prowess. So when you take the big three of Durant and Harden and Irving and realize that It can't just be those three. Sean Marks went out, made a bunch of deals, and feels much better about the group he has surrounding the big three compared to where they were when they started less than a year ago.
2: I am the Aldrich story is a feel good story, but I think really a big boost for this team. I was super impressed how he impacted them immediately. How significant is this addition and how he fits with that unit with those big three?
1: Andy, it's a buy-in more than anything else. And they got a little taste of that buy-in last year. Uh, The health issue precluded him from being a part of the postseason. It came out of left field. Thank goodness they found it, identified it, and it may have saved his life for all we know. But whatever heart issue was, was diagnosed, the doctors now feel very comfortable and Aldridge feels comfortable that he can come back and play. What I saw with him was exactly what they needed a low post presence that you could dump it into. He could draw a double team. If they didn't want a double, then he could score on opposing fours and opposing fives. They mostly had him playing a small ball five, which he was playing by the end of his tenure with San Antonio anyway. But there was a rotation there, Blake Griffin. He's going to probably add years to his career based on the fact in the NBA that you continue to play up in the one, two, three, four, five setup. Two guards play small forward spots later in their career. Small forwards play power forwards, power forward play center. And that's what LaMarcus Aldridge has done. That's where Blake Griffin fits in. I think you'll see Millsap playing some of that, even though he's even a bit more undersized than those two. And what we saw was DeAndre Jordan completely out of the rotation. Didn't fit what they were doing. And I think, this is just my sense of it, they didn't want to go down the road of playing him a little bit here and there and working him back in and then cutting it off again and dealing with his reaction they felt it could be a visceral reaction and may have hurt the team when the smoke cleared so they didn't even use that as an option everyone just assumed they would go to him at some point they never did they're clearly looking for something else at that spot and do you think
2: aldridge gives them a component on the defensive end, something they don't have, someone that at least can physically bang with a Joel Embiid or or, or a Joker or or Brooke Lopez.
1: Big time. And, and I think in that Milwaukee series in particular, it would have been another agile body to deal with Kumpo. Not to say he was going to stop Giannis, but you've got to have some resistance. And the part that really surprised me in his very short stint was how dedicated he was on the defensive side. So I don't know if he looked at what the Nets needed and realized, hey, look, I can have an impact here. They've got Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, James Harden, although Harden wasn't playing at that point. The offense was not necessarily what the Nets were asking for from him, although he did provide it. There were some games where he looked really sharp, and that turnaround 14-footer patented-looking Aldridge, a little bit of a fade on it, was perfect. But the defense is really where I think the Nets missed him at the tail end of the regular season and in the postseason when you notice that they just didn't have any answers. Bruce Brown at times was matching up with much bigger players and Bruce is an excellent defender, but he's also six four, And uh, there's just no possible way he's going to stop power forwards in this league on a consistent basis.
0: I and uh, Andy and I are both in agreement that if the Nets were at 100% you would have had a different NBA champion. I mean, you know, Durant carried them almost almost to the brink and, and almost got over the finish line against Milwaukee and it's any kind of criticism of, of them of course it's unfair. That all being said is hard and Harden only played on one leg and, and Irving wasn't even available. Are all those guys going to be at 100% when the regular season starts, number one? And number two, how important even more so with more veterans added to this roster this year is Steve Nash and the coaching staff, of course. How valuable you know, or important are they to make sure that everybody is rested for looking way down the road?
1: Yeah, let's take number one first. Uh, that will be of paramount importance, managing those guys. I think you're going to see a bunch of decisions made on back-to-backs and three and four nights and three and five or five and seven nights. They're just not going to push it. They know what the ultimate goal is. They're not looking to set the record for wins. That's irrelevant to them. They want to have this team ready to go and preserve for the postseason. But as we saw with Harden in particular, one odd cut can affect your hamstring and affect the fortunes of the team. And Harden was playing at an MVP level. Prior to his physical problems, he really was doing everything that they hoped and then some. And his leadership is really what blew me away. I didn't really know what to make of James in his Oklahoma City days, in Houston. I had done a few of his games at Arizona State. In fact, uh, he got knocked out of the NCAA tournament his final year at Arizona State by Syracuse down in Miami, if memory serves. And I was calling the game for CBS. And while I was impressed with him, I must admit, looking back, I did not think at that stage that he was going to be as gifted a scorer as he turned out to be. I knew he would be a five-tool-type player in the NBA, do everything. I just didn't know he would be able to score at will, uh, which he's developed and give him a lot of credit for working on his game. So the health part, Yes, David, you nailed it. Uh, that that's the essence of everything. You're right. It it would have changed the NBA champion. It would have changed NBA history. Just think about how the dominoes work in this setup. Giannis Adenakumpo is being applauded, and rightfully so. He was incredible in the postseason. He is a tremendous player, and I think also a great person behind it. So that duality of, of having someone that really has earned this tremendous story, stayed with Milwaukee, got it done. If they fall short to the Nets, if Kevin Durant wears one size smaller in his sneaker, and that is a three, and they win the game, think about the criticism that Kumpo is dealing with right now. It would be at a fever pitch. And who knows? Maybe I would think the Nets would have handled Atlanta in the next round, but maybe not. Maybe Atlanta makes a surprise run or the Suns emerge and win a title for Chris Paul. And the story is completely different right now. We're talking about Chris Paul having this culminating moment and Giannis Adenakumpo may need to get out of Milwaukee to win a championship. The second part with Steve Nash. Yes. It's, it's a big part of the equation. I think Steve, did a really outstanding job of connecting with his players. Uh, He's got very high emotional IQ. He's a people person. He knows how to communicate. I think the basketball side of it, he probably leaned on Dan Toney a great deal, who's not going to be there this season. He moved on. Steve Clifford comes in in a different role, but one that could be very helpful to the Nets. And... I think you're going to see Steve impose more of his philosophies on what the Nets are running, uh, what the plan is going into games and he's feeling his way through. His IQ is very high. And I, I think you're just going to see a lot more of Steve's influence in year two as a head coach with a very bizarre year under his belt, but one that still counts and a truncated season that he can lean on for experience. But uh, I'm sensing it's going to be a little different in how he handles his team in year
2: two. I wanted to talk about the loaded front court, and I was wondering with Griffin and Aldridge returning, does that impact the role of Nicholas Claxton, who to me was extremely impressive last year?
1: Very much so. And you could see growth. He was limited. As a rookie, he was injured. He finally got a chance and wasn't much of a role for him. Year two, we saw him blossom and his confidence rise. And when Harden got there, I think it opened up a new world for Claxton. Harden looked for him, injected him with confidence. Durant injected him with confidence. And I think Claxton was riding that wave. At the end of the season, it didn't appear that they trusted him. In that seventh game, he played one minute. He guarded the inbounder. I think he played one second. If we went back and really looked at the box score, he may have played one second uh, on an inbound toss at the end of regulation when uh, the Bucks were trying to win the game. The reality is they need him to progress and it can't be done with just Aldridge and Griffin and Millsap. We're talking about guys whose ages start with a three and they're getting deeper and they're just not going to play a whole lot back to back. They're going to manage minutes. Nicholas Claxton's going to have to be a workhorse for this team. And that means getting physically stronger, upper body strength, which I think there's still a lot of room for him to fill out. He runs the floor beautifully. You can see how Comfortable he is, long strides. And that's really why I think he benefited from Harden. Harden looked for him. Then Kyrie started looking for him. Uh, so, yes, year three for Nicholas Claxton, immense for this team. I don't think he's going to be a bit player. I think they're expecting more from him this year and in more valuable minutes, in more important minutes than we saw in years one and two.
2: Do you think there's more upside offensively to him from what we've seen? Because I remember a play last year where he takes the ball off the glass and goes end-to-end with it.
1: Yeah, he's very instinctual. So things that are uh, reactive to him are correct. So his instincts are leading him to making winning plays. And you're right, he crashes the glass well. He's so long. And as a defender, I must admit, when I started seeing him switch out on – to point guards and two guards. My first instinct was, really, is this is this the matchup you're looking for? Incredibly and impressive. I, I quickly realized that no, that's what they wanted. <laughs> they this was not this was not the offense getting the matchup they wanted. It was the Nets getting the matchup they wanted because he would win those individual battles consistently over and over again. His recovery time if he got beat on a play, he could close and his length and wingspan allowed him and agility and body control to block shots that I did not think was even feasible. And it's really interesting from a play by play point of view this past season, everything we did was up top. So for home games, we were high and for road games, we were remote. We were calling him off a monitor. So, normally your, your eyes are your guide as a play-by-play announcer and things that are just ingrained in you, where you look and how you look and how you view it, you almost had to retrain because of your perspective. So there were moments with Claxton where I believe if I was on the floor, I would have caught certain things that he did. And because I was up top, I would see them on replay and be blown away. Movement-wise, decisions that he made, ground that he covered like that. Uh, I, I do think there is upside to him offensively. Defensively, he's already really confident and is willing to take on anybody any size.
0: I, and I've always said that one of the greatest gifts I've ever had in my reporting broadcasting career is sitting courtside and watching, still in my opinion, the greatest basketball player ever in Michael Jordan. Right now, I mean, you have three superstars, and if Durant's not the best player in the world, he's stopped two or three. What kind of thrill is it for you, not only as a broadcaster, but, you know, a basketball fan, et cetera, et cetera, of just watching these great athletes up close and personal on a game-by-game basis?
1: David, it was really incredible last year, and I can't even begin to imagine what it will be like once we're traveling again because part of the fun is going into opposing arenas and watching and listening to fans react to greatness. So when Durant, Harden, and Kyrie do something spectacular and special, in Brooklyn, I got a little feel for it. The playoffs, finally the place was full, and you got a taste. Now, we weren't doing those games against Milwaukee. I was there, and we were doing pre- and post-game, and I could feel it, but it's still different than putting a headset on and sitting courtside and taking in that cacophony of sound. So I'm beyond excited to see what it's going to really be like this year. I just know from a play-by-play perspective, they packed in probably eight years worth of highlights into one year. So as an announcer, you just have to be ready to go at any moment. There's a chance that they could have a play of the year at any moment. So if you get stuck looking down at notes or gazing at something else or making eye contact with your analyst, especially this past season where you're calling it off a monitor and the game's happening in Orlando or in Tampa or in Atlanta or in Dallas or at home where you're much higher than you normally are and things are not clicking necessarily the way that they used to, you would miss it. And I had to be all in all the time, concentration level at a fevered pitch because you just didn't want to be late on these calls. These were all time highlights being produced by three tremendous talents.
2: Now I've got to tell you, when I talk about the Nets, I'm compelled to talk about Bruce Brown because you have to love this guy. Now, he was a restricted free agent, didn't receive an offer sheet, and that signed him for one year, $4.7 million, I thought an absolute steal. Now, were you surprised like I was that he didn't get an offer? And I think teams really missed the boat on this one with him.
1: I think this has become a recurring theme with Bruce. I'm not sure everybody appreciates what he brings. And when he's on your team, you tend to see it because you're around it day in and day out. He's one of those guys that just grows on you. He's consistently making the right play. Uh, His energy, his enthusiasm shows in his play on both sides of the ball. Look, he's not a jump shooter. He'll make a three occasionally. Uh, It's just not a strength in his game. So if a team is going to go out and sign him as a restricted free agent and make that kind of of commitment to him. You have to understand there are limitations offensively, but he's worked really hard on his in-between game. He can score around the rim. He plays much bigger than he is. And everything that I know, I did a bunch of his games at Miami. I just happened to have them for whatever reason over his two years there. I had him three or four times and he always stood out as someone that I thought could play in the NBA, he reminded me in the way he carried himself, almost like an NFL player. His movements, he he played football in high school and he was a very good player. And it's not surprising because of the way he carries himself. He brings a little bit of that mentality, whatever it takes, run through a wall if necessary, physical, take on bigger guys. Look, if he does it again, Andy, he's going to get an offer sheet somewhere else. Someone's going to scoop him up. I don't know the numbers, but I think the Nets were thrilled to have him back, and he's on a prove-it contract right now where either the Nets are going to retain him because he's part of the core and they love what he brings, or he does enough this season to show somebody else that he deserves a a four-year commitment and multiple millions of dollars over the course of that contract.
2: I'm curious. I went back and looked – at some of his tape at Miami, and maybe you saw the same thing, but I saw some some really good guard skills, breakdown ability, and I just feel like a lot of these NBA teams don't value the other assets he brings to the table because he can defend really one through four, and his rebounding is off the charts for a guard. So I think the NBA gets caught up maybe in the three-point specialist more than a guy that can defend and rebound like him.
1: I would agree. Uh, I think that's that's a fair assessment, and some teams figure it out. The Nets liked what they saw of him in Detroit. Remember, he was starting at one point for the Pistons, and you know, they were trying to make him a point guard or a lead guard, and I think he's just a player. I, I wouldn't put a label on on what he is, he's not a one. He's not a two. He's a th- as you said, he can switch on any of those four positions, and you would feel comfortable with the matchup. He got overpowered at times if if he would end up on on burly six foot nine, six foot ten players, but he would hold his own too. He'd anchor down, and again, there's a toughness, that football mentality that he brought. But yes, uh, he's not a three point shooter, and he really wasn't at Miami. I'd have to look back at my scouting report. I believe that it was already out. Everyone kind of knew, all right, but he didn't have to at Miami. His spin moves worked. Transition game worked. He could back down guys at Miami as well. And he was just more athletic than a bunch of guys, and he can get around them. And and he's got a a really nice zigzag game to him as well. So he really started to work on that floater, and they started to lean on him as the roller towards the rim. And, you know, we'd see him a lot get a – a bunch of looks, free looks, seven, eight feet from the rim, little little pop shots that would go in. He had one of those against Milwaukee, as we know, in game three. If he makes it, the Nets take a 3-0 lead, commanding 3-0 lead. The Bucs don't come back in that series, and the Nets go to the conference finals. And he missed it, and it was such a shame because he had earned the right to take that shot. Everybody was shocked that he got the look, but he made a bunch of those and pretty consistently throughout the season.
0: Ian, let me take you away from the Nets just for a second. One of the stories that's been pretty big over the last week or two, and honestly, I don't think it got all the, as much traction as I thought it would, and maybe it still will, is the fact that the New York metropolitan area and out in the Bay Area as well, that if you're not vaccinated, you're not getting into Madison Square Garden or the Barclays Center or wherever the name were, where Golden State plays. How is this going to affect the players specifically on the Nets, uh, well, any of the teams that play in any of those buildings.
1: No, it's an immense story. Uh, We are a little bit out of sight, out of mind, because we're not in the throes of the season. We're not talking to players, asking them their perspective on this. So it's out there, and the Players Association is certainly aware of it. At no point last year during this NBA season was there a moment in each city where – we needed to know who was vaccinated. The understanding was that you will follow the protocols and the teams will be in charge of policing it and the NBA will step in. And we saw some very awkward moments uh, when Kevin Durant was pulled from a game because he had close contact uh, with what turned out to be a security guard with the team who tested positive. KD did not, but he was in a car with him for more than 20 minutes He was not allowed to start a game against Toronto. Then he was allowed to go in. Then he was pulled from the game. So there was a lot of confusion as to exactly how this was all going to work. Somehow the NBA got through it. Somehow the NBA crowned a champion. And fortunately, there was no calamity along the way. This is now ironclad in these areas. And at some point we're going to get to that stage where we find out who's vaccinated and who's not, because you can't hide. If you, if you play in these areas, you're going to have to come out and uh, either get vaccinated or you're not going to play. You're not going to participate this season. It seems pretty straightforward to me.
2: Um, I I had to ask you about a former net when Aldridge was signed, the Nets had a cutter player and it, it hit me hard because I'm actually the self-appointed president of the Alizé Johnson fan club. But I believe you're a member, too. Am I correct in that?
1: I am a fan. Yeah, I loved his energy. I loved his whole
2: vibe. Yeah, amazing stat that I looked up. Clint Capella and Dwight Howard led the NBA in rebounds per 100 possessions at 23.4. Number two, Alizé Johnson. And Mr. Schuster now has the pleasure of watching him. That's right.
0: I'm actually looking forward to watching him. I know he had a 2020 game against Indiana last season and, and help me out, Ian and help the bulls fans who are going to be listening to this podcast, understand this player a little bit more. He's an undersized, at least from a height standpoint, power forward at six, seven, but you know, is, is it a fair comparison to say that he's got the nose for the rebounding basketball, like, like Dennis Rodman once upon a time had, is that fair?
1: That might be hyperbole, but <laughs> but there are qualities that are similar. He did not come from a big program. He was undrafted. He was on Indiana's squad for a couple of years, saw very little action, G League, and he starts lighting up the G League with double, 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 double. The Nets signed him to a 10-day contract. They were in dire need of a body. They just needed a body. So, you know, when you've been doing this for as long as all of us have – you see guys come and go and you hear scouting reports and a guy gets seven minutes in a game and tries to make it happen. Well, the first game he plays in, the Nets are getting crushed, crushed. They're down 20 early and it's a throwaway. So they throw in Alizé Johnson. He'd been there 10 minutes, basically. <laughs> he, Steve Nash had not met him yet. I remember the the pregame interview the zoom with the head coach and they said well what about alizé he's like yeah no i'm gonna meet him in about 10 minutes so (laughs) there was nothing there that would indicate that he was going to be a factor that night and he comes in and just does everything correct like a bull in a china shop he's (laughs) just moving people out of the way he's diving for the ball he's getting offensive boards putbacks from angles almost like and andy will tell you this there are moments where it's almost like he's not looking at the rim when he shoots. It's a no look shot. He grabs and he just flicks it right back up. So I think he's an NBA player, and I think he'll find a role in Chicago. He's just one of those guys that you fall in love with the more and more that you see him. You know, it became a numbers game for the Nets, and obviously they were looking for credibility more than anything else. They're looking to win a championship. It's well, not sure.
0: Johnson is now, now part of the Bulls mob sco- or bench mob or whatever you yeah. want to call them nowadays, which is really at this juncture. And let me just ask you, from an outside standpoint, your opinion on what the Bulls and, and what their new hierarchy has done over the last year and a half. Um, I think they're starting five, and I think Lonzo Ball will fit in like a glove on this team. I really have liked his improvement, obviously, since he came into the league. The Bulls' starting five is not bad. Now, Andy will tell you he thought the trade to get Vucevic was a terrible trade on the Bulls' part. He's gone on record as saying so. It was a gamble, obviously. But, I mean, what what are your thoughts from an outsider or actually, you know, an insider in the NBA, yeah. but an outsider from Chicago on what the Bulls have done here?
1: Yeah, I thought the, uh, the Vucevic trade was a bit of a Hail Mary. They were trying to stay relevant and stay in the playoff race. And... It just didn't seem like a good fit. Uh, he yeah, he put up the numbers that you tend to expect from him. They were a little bit down maybe from what he was doing in Orlando, but still what you expect. But it wasn't winning basketball. It wasn't translating into wins. And it felt disjointed at times at the end of the season. I like their moves during this offseason. I think now they have a little something to work with for next year that should improve the team to the point where they should be a, at least at the very least a part of the play-in. But I would think expectations are even higher than that. Uh, I, I happen to agree with you, David. I think Lonzo Ball is a great fit for the Bulls and for Billy Donovan. And I must say, I thought he handled himself very well last year. Um, uh, Look, I'm a Stan Van Gundy fan. I got to work with him at Turner. I may get to work with him again at some point. And I think Stan really missed out unfortunately on what a non-COVID season would have been for him. He's all about trying to bring people together, literally bringing them together, bringing them to his house and including them in his family, barbecues, outings. None of that was allowed, none of it. So I think, the Pelicans got Coach Stan and they didn't get to know the man Stan. And that worked against him now because he's really demanding and expects a lot from his guys because he expects a lot from himself. Ultimately, New Orleans fell out of love with Ball and they allowed him to, to move on to Chicago. To me, it's a mistake. I believe he's going to have successful seasons. And he showed me a lot last year. He's improved his game. His jump shot now looks credible. Give him a lot of credit for that. Worked, accepted coaching, accepted change. You know, this is a guy that was taken very high in the draft. If he wanted to rest on his laurels, he could have, but he also wanted to be a great player. And I think he's going to be a, a really good fit for the Bulls.
0: And and he's also got one of the great, and I love Maurice Cheeks as a player, and he's a great coach. And I think having him, you know, to help you out even more so, because let's face it, Ball's only 24 years old. So he's still got growth in in front of him. To have a coach like Maurice Cheeks is going to help his game even more.
1: And sounding board, you know, I think what I've noticed in the NBA, you've got to have somebody on your staff that can tell the truth. And I know that sounds very rudimentary, but not every guy on your staff can. It's based on what you did as a player. It's based on how you present the facts. It's based on your way with people. And I think Mo Cheeks is the type of guy that can just say it like it is and say what needs to be said. And in this case, Ball is going to benefit from uh, someone that has lived it and done it at the highest level and now can be blunt and direct but can speak from a place of true perspective. So uh, that's an excellent point, David. I I think that that's also going to be a nice nice addition for Lonzo to have that kind of sounding board at his disposal.
2: Uh, now, can we turn to the mess in Philadelphia? Uh, <laughs> do you believe that the Sixers will get good value for Simmons, considering that huge hole in his game and? Do you hear any rumblings about a possible landing spot?
1: I think the window of opportunity to get the most for him has come and gone. I do think they can still get value, but to think they're going to get a King's ransom at this point, I don't believe so. I don't, I don't think when the rest of the league knows that you have to get rid of the player, that he does not want to be there, and odds are you don't want him, and yes, you can say all the right things. No, no, we'll start the season, and Ben's a part of what we do. The ship has passed. That that's, that's my feeling. And it passed last year. You could see it developing, and he needs a change of scenery, truly. I think he needs to go somewhere else. Now, he might not be able to pick and choose that spot, and the Sixers are going to do whatever they need to do in order to get some fair value. He's a really talented player, but the limits – came to the surface and reared its ugly head in the biggest moments. And we've seen this through the years with certain guys. You forget about not shooting threes. That happens, and that's fine. Although I think anybody in the NBA would tell you, hey, look, that's got to be your priority, whatever it takes. And we see practice footage of the guy making threes, so yep. it is It is mental. The part that really became troubling, anytime he was near the rim, He was getting rid of the basketball. He did not want to go to the free throw line at all. And now, as we know in this league, they smell blood. There's blood in the water. And teams are going to do everything in their power to take advantage of that. So coaches are smart. Players are smart. They figured it out. They knew what to do around Ben. And that, not to say it left him powerless, it didn't. You know, he still would put up numbers and. Certainly would get his around the rim in easy situations, layups, breakaways, uh, dribble drive, breakdowns. But too many times that I saw where he would get a pass near the rim or on a drive and he'd look to dish in what should have been a clear finish or at least a foul or a potential and one. And then beyond that, I I, I just think it's irreparable. Uh, but no, I've not heard anything on the rumor mill. I'm sure the Sixers are working tirelessly to find the right suitor and to find what we could deem as equal value. But boy, it's rare when it gets to this stage in the relationship that a team can get back what they could have gotten back if they pulled the trigger much sooner than what they're ultimately going to do.
0: I know, um, I just want to add one little uh, tidbit and Andy and I have talked about this also. Yeah, it was very unfortunate what happened. It was almost embarrassing with what happened with Ben Simmons uh, in that series against Milwaukee, but he's got at least a chance if he takes all the criticism to heart and and his pride, he's got a chance of potentially, I, I underline that word of being the most improved player in the NBA. If he starts doing what he should be capable of doing, taking shots in the fourth quarter, at least hitting 60% of his free throws, I don't know, something like that. All right, I want to move on because, you know, we appreciate your time, of course, on one more question from each one of us. Um, upcoming, I believe it's this weekend, is the Basketball Hall of Fame. And you've probably worked, and I know you've seen almost every name, of course, that's going in. And, you know, it's a who's who with Paul Pierce and Chris Bosh, Ben Wallace, Chris Weber, Rick Adelman. Bill Russell, of course, going in as a coach. Jay Wright, who I'm sure you've done a lot of his games over the years. Um, uh, Bobby Dandridge, who was an underrated player on that Milwaukee championship team back in the past. And Tony Kukoc, of course, from the Bulls championship teams. I'm just wondering if there's anything that you want to say about any of those players. They're all great who's who, NBA and college players as well.
1: Yeah, you nailed it with Jay. I've done so many Villanova games through the years. He's one of the classiest people in the business beyond being a tremendous coach and a connector of people and understanding how all of this works. So on a personal level, thrilled for Jay, he deserves it. And then also really happy for Chris Weber, who I've worked NCAA tournaments with, NBA playoff series with, and is really a outstanding person in my dealings with Chris. He's, he's got probably a more misunderstood persona than any guy I can think of over the last 20, 25 years. I think with him, from what I've found, he really felt it was important to create an image of being a tough guy and he needed that to fuel him in some way in the NBA and who knows where that came from but it took away a bit from what kind of performer he was at his height in the league and uh, I just thought um, I thought there was a chance he wouldn't get in And I'm so glad that he did, because I believed he was a Hall of Fame player. When I watched him play, uh, I I thought he was of that caliber. And sometimes you just don't know, based on politics, how it's going to turn out. So for Chris to get in, uh, I'm really thrilled for him. And I know it meant a lot to him. He's a sensitive guy. And while he may not have acknowledged it or admitted it prior I think now he will go on record and it will be an emotional speech for him. Don't be surprised if, if tears are shed.
2: I, and I was wondering if there's a player in the league that you really like that you feel flies under the national radar.
1: Oh man. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are a bunch. Uh, If I went team by team, I probably could give you one from each team that I think doesn't get enough credit. Uh, You know, just off the top of my head, Jimmy Butler was that guy. And then, boom, explosion. Everyone started to see the impact that he had with every team that he went to. He turned that team into a winner based on his mentality. But for a while, and David saw it firsthand, not to say he was doing it in complete anonymity, but I think it was a slow climb for Jimmy to finally get that respect. People in the league knew how competitive he was and how demanding he was but I'm not sure the general public do and every few years it reveals itself guys that work extremely hard and when you see him every day you appreciate it but if you see him just two or three times a year maybe you don't really see what it is that those that really know are talking about but that's the type Jimmy to me personifies what this league is all about if you immerse yourself in it. If you work really hard at your game, you've gotta have the natural talent, don't get me wrong, a lot of these guys do, but then there's something that separates you and there's something in your wiring that puts you in a different classification. I think Jimmy uh, is the one that embodies all of the traits that you need to climb that ladder the way that he did.
0: I, and I said at the top of this podcast that you're great at everything, and now I add that you're a great interview also and and it's got to be fun sometimes to be on the other side isn't it i mean you know most of the time you're interviewing and by the way you know i've I've sat next to you for a long time doing stats on the broadcast when you're in town and i am just going to blow some smoke here just for a second i you know i don't listen to all the guys when they come in you you know there's i don't want to say they're a dime a dozen because that is (laughs) absolute wrong thing to say but some people are better than others and you're at the top of the totem pole because you could take a bad game seriously And you can make it fun because you could even get away from basketball and talk about current events. And and obviously, I've known Sarah Kustak for a long time. And whoever you've sat next to over the years, you have such a great camaraderie. And I appreciate it. And I I do listen closely. And I laugh. You make people laugh. And and on top of informing and entertaining, you make people have fun watching the game. So I just want to thank you, along with Andy, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure.
2: Great to see you, Ian. David, Andy,
1: I truly appreciate it. I love talking hoops. I love talking to you guys. I know audio podcasts can't necessarily articulate blushing, but (laughs) I'm blushing, David. That meant the world to me, and I I really do appreciate the kind words. The goal on these broadcasts is to inform and entertain, and sometimes you've got to change the priority because if the game goes south, entertain becomes – The first priority and inform might become the second priority, trying to maintain your audience, trying to keep things light, bring some levity. And to me, the key ingredient is finding commonality with your analyst. It's not supposed to feel like it's a conversation. It's supposed to be a conversation. So I never want it to feel like it's question and answer or it's I talk, you talk, it's we talk we share the conversation and if that comes across to the viewer or the listener on radio then we've done our job so it really means a lot thank you guys
0: all right i again for andy and myself we appreciate you joining us and uh, to everybody out there i hope you enjoyed this and we'll be back uh, shortly down the road